I think a, a big part of what happened over there is you had a lot of funds that had a lot of segregated accounts. And these segregated accounts had different risk managers. So the different big institutional investors, they might have their own risk managers assigned to different segregated accounts. And once it hit their limit, they just wanted to get out. And a lot of them, I think, pushed the market to these extremes with the kind of getting out at exactly the wrong time. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode in the Open Interest series on Top Traders Unplugged, hosted by Moritz Siebert. In life, as well as in trading, maintaining a spirit of curiosity and open-mindedness is key, and this is precisely what the Open Interest series is all about. Join Moritz as he engages in candid conversations with seasoned professionals from around the globe to uncover their insights, successes, and failures, offering you a unique perspective on the investment landscape. So with no further ado, please enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is Moritz Siebert, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of Open Interest, a new podcast series which I run on Top Traders Unplugged and where my aim is to inspire you, the listener, through interesting conversations with some of the best traders from all around the world. And today, for episode number one, I'm joined by Maurits van den Worm, who works as a quant and investment researcher at Polarstar, in South Africa. Polarstar is a commodities-focused hedge fund and a company I actually wanted to get onto a podcast for a long time. I don't know if you remember, Maurits, but I don't think you've ever been on one. And I asked you about two years ago, you declined back then saying that you'd rather not speak about the trading strategies on the air. But today we will, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the really interesting details as well. Now, to frame it, the subject of today's podcast is commodity spreads, including not only calendar spreads, but cross-market substitution spreads, location arbitrage trades, processing margin spreads, and much more. We'll also speak about the South African commodity markets and the role these markets play inside Polarstar's portfolio. And last but not least, Maurits will explain the term full carry to us and how this ties into Polarstar's position sizing and risk calculations. And with that, Please enjoy my conversation with Maurits van den Worm from Polarstar. Maurits, welcome to the show. Hi, Maurits. Yeah, good to be on the show. I've been an avid listener of the Top Trader Unplug, Top Traders Unplugged postcard series for a couple of years, so it's, uh, it's good to speak to you. Fantastic. Well, by the way, I need to say this great name, anything that starts with an M and ends with an it's sounds pretty good to me. So uh, very happy to have you on. And just for background, I know from our prep call, you are a quantum physics PhD. So naturally, you know, we have to start with why are you interested in finance? What brought you to the commodity space or to the hedge fund space in more general? And shouldn't you be working on the really interesting and difficult problems like climate change or rare earth mining on the moon? I think I kind of fell into the hedge fund space by accident. But um, if I had to do, do everything from the start again, I, I think I would still still do mathematics and physics because it's just a, a love of mine that I've had since since childhood. So no regrets. So I, I really enjoyed my path to to do to PhD, and um, there's something. It's a it's a lot of hard work, but it has very uh, very many similarities to to trading. Like in academia, you have this notion of publish or perish. So you have to create a research output, and it's always a struggle to get it out, fighting with reviewers and whatnot. And the market is very similar. So you do your research, and you put up a position, so you have some skin in the game. 
But I prefer the market actually because you get feedback a lot faster than you can from your academic peer review process. It's uh, I think it's it's actually it was a good fit. So uh, there are similarities, there are differences, but I think I've gone, I've made a full phase transition from physicist to to capitalist. Well, so welcome to our world. Um, tell us a bit about Polar Star. I'm, I'm asking this question, so maybe let's make this a twofold question. First off there aren't, to the best of my knowledge, that many hedge funds in South Africa to begin with. I mean, most of them are in London, New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, etc. But you are in Cape Town. So tell us, you know, what you do there. Why are you there? Is that, you know, on, on purpose that you've removed yourself a little bit from the major financial capitals or is it just where the team's based? Just give us, tell us a bit about what Polestar is and where you guys are based. So I think... You kind of have to go back to, in South Africa many times. You have to go back to apartheid, the fall of apartheid, and and uh, what that meant for South Africa and, and global markets in particular. So with the fall of apartheid, South African markets became open to the world. So not only for foreign investors into South Africa, but now you also had the ability of, for South African investors to invest abroad as well. And a lot of opportunities sprung from that. So uh, the founders of, of, of Polar Star started at a, a bank in South Africa called Rand Merchant Bank. And they came from very physical commodity-centric backgrounds, like physical milling companies, like actual broker brokerage businesses with dealing with physical maize and, and, and wheat in, in the South African market. <clears throat> and inside the Rand Merchant Bank, they started the commodities desk which is like, which was a proprietary trading desk inside the, the, the bank. And a natural thing that emerged there, or a natural strategy that, that emerged there was to trade relative value arbitrage between South African produced commodities and the benchmark, which in that case was United States um, commodities. So an example would be South African yellow maize versus uh, seaboard corn would, would be an example. Because it's exactly the same commodity, just produced in two different geographical locations, and it presented this natural opportunity to trade the spread between these these commodities. So performance inside the prop trading desk inside the bank went really well, and um, the guys wanted to benefit from from the performance, the, the the good performance that they had in these strategies, but the bank couldn't create a vehicle for them to co-invest. So in two thousand and nine. They left the bank structure and started a, a hedge fund. And I must say, the Rand Merchant Bank has always been on their side. So the, the relationship is very amicable. And the bank even introduced some of the, um, some of the in, in the initial high net worth clients as well, just to get the fund start, starting. And um, we still do, do business with, with Rand Merchant Bank to, to this day. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. So why... why why are we in, in, in Cape Town, in South Africa? I think so. In two thousand and nine, the fund started, or well, the, the South African Rand Fund started, and um, I think it just made a lot of sense for us to to be here. Most of the big client base was still South African, South African money. But in two thousand and ten, we did start a offshore fund as well, a, a Cayman a Cayman based hedge fund, which is exactly the same strategy. It's just denominated in, in US dollars. And that fund has been yeah, up and running now since 2010. So it's a good 14 years track record. But Cape Town is a great place to sit. So I think from a from a trading point of view, it, the time zone is, is great because there's the lines of Europe. You catch you catch the end of day session on the Asian markets and you and you also align with the morning in the States. So time zone wise it's actually pretty convenient to sit here. There is a beautiful mountain. There's lots of beaches and good weather. So I think it's an excellent place to live. I think you speak, uh, or you mentioned the Table Mountain there, and uh, the surf seems to be pretty good where you are as well. So, yeah, look, I mean, I'm based south of Munich. We're actually in the same time zone, you and I, Maritz, and, and I enjoy the benefits of that as well. You know, I can trade. If I wanted to get up early, I could you know, even trade the Asian markets, but I get all of Europe and then, you know, the U.S., uh, markets as well. Okay, so you already mentioned, I mean, this was something that I wanted to touch on a little bit later, but you've brought it up, which is the uh, CBOD or the Chicago corn versus 
uh, South African mace arbitrage trade. I think this is kind of like one of your signature trades or one of the trades that Polestar was beginning, was 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 trading from essentially the get-go or what got you started. Now, before we go into maybe some of the, the background around these type of trades, for the benefit of everybody, let's just go through the different types of spreads, or you've called them relative value trades. I mean, it is always one leg short against, you know, another thing long, or maybe you even have a triplet where, you know, we have a spread combination. But in terms of categorization, I think what we can say is you have these geographical trades or these location arbitrage trades, which are things such as, for instance, COMEX copper versus LME copper or Shanghai copper, or uh, it could be London gold versus New York gold or London cocoa versus New York cocoa, even though there is a little bit of a difference in the grade of that cocoa bean that's delivered in London versus New York, but let's just say it's close enough. Then another category, and I think you're active in all three that I'm going to mention, another category is substitution spreads. So that is, for instance, an example is um, Arabica coffee versus Robusta coffee. If your Arabica espresso becomes too expensive, maybe you're going to have a filtered Robusta coffee and you know that is now cheaper. And then there is a large variety of essentially processing margin spreads, um, which is crack spreads, for instance, you know, breaking up a barrel of crude oil, crush spreads, you know, taking a soybean into meal and then oil, spark spreads, gas or coal to electricity, or refining spreads, uh, which for instance is raw sugar uh, in New York versus refined wine sugar in London. Yeah, I, I would even include something like a corn ethanol spread in there as well. Okay. And this is, I think you are active, your footprint is across the entire spectrum of the things that I've just mentioned. So we're not just talking calendar spreads in the same market, such as, you know, December versus July wheat on the same exchange. Uh, we're talking cross-market spreads and all these other things, which is, and this got me interested in talking to you, you're producing performance and returns, which is very different to what many other commodity funds are producing. And I find that very interesting. And also the way you approach the sizing and getting in and out of these spreads. So, I mean, let's just start with the one that you've mentioned. The You've mentioned South African maize versus Chicago corn. So maybe some of the listeners don't know that there actually is a South African commodity futures market. It, it's not the largest in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but you have yellow maize and white maize and wheat, um, some other markets. There are some Tell soybeans as well. Soybeans, okay. And so there's, in South Africa, there's a lot of agriculture, but I mean, most of the country is desert, so there's not so much arable land. So naturally, we don't produce as much as other countries of the same size. But within the South African market, I'd say your bigger commodity contracts are yellow maize, white maize, and South African wheat. With soybeans, a close, a close fourth full, as well. And um, what's interesting is the, the relative or geographical arbitrage combinations you can then recreate with it. So first example would be seaboard corn versus South African yellow maize as, as an example, or you can do something like Chicago wheat versus South African wheat. Uh, but also, you don't have to be stuck with uh, U.S. commodities. You can also look at, say, South African wheat versus European wheat or black sea wheat. So the combinations in geographical arbitrage that you can create is, is very interesting, and it's very interesting dynamics that, that, that you can create. So just to put some numbers out there, um, before logging on, I had a quick look. So in the CBOT, most active contract for corn currently open interest, I think it's a December contract, Current open interest is around 655,000 lots. And the South African yellow maize is about 18,000 lots. So it's a lot less, and it's a lot less liquid, although this, you still find... Same, good, con same contract size? Sorry to interrupt, but are we talking no, same no, notional no. per lot? It's, okay. it's, it's not the same. So this is like a little thing that you have to keep in mind. So they, the, the US contract is priced in cents per bushel. And the South African contract is priced in um, South African rand per metric ton. So if you do, a, so we'd like to trade it on a ton for ton basis because essentially we're thinking of shipping this the equivalent amount of maize from different locations to a specific uh, destination. So the tonnages need to need to match up. 
So a seaboard corn contract, for instance, has a tonnage of, uh, I think it's 127 tons, while the South African contract is 100 tons. So if you want to trade this, there's always this, let's say, 1.3 to 2 to 1 ratio that, that you have to keep in mind, and also, obviously, the currency that, that you have to keep in mind. Right. So, but, but by your numbers, I mean, it's fair to say the South African market is not even a tenth yeah. of the Chicago market, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's very small. What did you yeah. say? Eight, 18,000 lots, and these are even smaller than the 600-something thousand lots of open exactly, interest yes. in Yeah, if in you had Chicago, to convert it to right? tonnage, it's, it's actually quite a bit less. It's like 5 6%. So. Right. So, let's just, you know, go through that trade. I mean, you can observe one market trading more expensively than the other. I mean, is it... I mean, are the expiries the same? I mean, that is an important thing here, right? I mean, if you're trading July versus December, that is not a, not a pure arbitrage. That is now a calendar spread. Correct. So the 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 expiries align. At least it might be a couple of days difference, but we tend to be out of out of a trade before way before we we reach expiry dates. But let's say there there's a couple of days difference, maybe, but but not not that much. Okay. It's not something like, say, WTI versus Brent, where there's about a month of difference in the, in the same contract. Right. But then, in your case, you also have, because one contract is trading in South African Rand and the other one is trading in dollars, you have an FX position, which yes. you need to adjust for. Yes. So, what, so how we think of it is we are commodity spread traders. We're not currency traders. So at inception of the trade, we hedge out all currency risk. Or we at least hedge out rand dollar risk. So you still have a dollar exposure, but we try to to not be involved in trying to predict what the rand is going to do. Right, you're getting the trade to the same denominator, so to say exactly. that it's really only influenced by what it is that you're targeting, which is the spread narrowing or widening depending on the side that you have on. Yeah. So most of these agricultural spits, we will convert everything to a dollar per ton basis and and, and work from there. Okay. And would you be, I'm just I'm just putting it out there, you'll probably just say no, but would you say, okay, as soon as one market is trading more expensively than the other, you guys swing into action and you immediately execute a spread trade, or does it have to be dislocated by at least a certain amount so that you will get interested in that trade to begin with? I think if you're, if you're coming from like a pure say, quantitative background and people look at these things where they calculate the rolling z-scores and, and rolling standard deviations and look to enter a trade at multiples of standard deviations and then exit closer to the mean and stuff like that. So this is it's not not at all what we do. So many of these uh, agricultural and other um, commodity spreads have very fundamental or have, have spread levels that are governed by the underlying fundamentals of of the com of the commodities or the jurisdictions and under which they are produced. As an example, um, in South Africa, we produce anything from 8 to 16 million tons of maize every year. Our local consumption is roughly 11 million, 11 million tons. So in a year of weak production, if we only produce 8 million tons, we have to import 30 million tons. Whereas if we produce 15 million tons, all of a sudden we can export a lot of our, a lot of our crops, so we can export four, 4 million tons. But you need to understand these basic supply and demand fundamentals of the different jurisdictions that you are considering. So most of the time, uh, when you're talking about the price of one contract being elevated compared to other, it'll probably be in the front end of the curve because that's where most of the people are looking. But in reality, these opportunities kind of present themselves better along the futures curve. So not at the front, closest to expiry, but say six months out, year out, even 18 months out on your futures curve. That is where you see interesting opportunities. So that is kind of where, where we like to, to, to look at opportunities. So we will then try to determine what the future fundamentals will be of, of these different jurisdictions and as these future fundamentals realize, be it against us or, or, or for us, the spreads will tend to converge to, say, their true values reflected by the underlying fundamentals. You just mentioned trading all the way to like 18 months out, which 
I think in the case of wheat, if, you know, let's just say that would take us to July 25 or May 25, something like that. I'm not sure to what extent these points on the curve are liquid today. You will probably, I guess, find it, uh, at least in my experience, almost more difficult to get into the trade than it is to get out of the trade, assuming that you have a certain hold period for the trade, which means that over time you will move that spread into liquidity into a more liquid part of the curve yeah, for you to exit. That, that's, that, that's correct. So, so there's a couple, couple of things at play here. So, get, it, so the curve shape gets determined by, by many things. So current stock levels, um, does the absolute price of the commodity play, plays a big role. Um, interest rates will play, play, play a big role. But in the commodity space, a big thing is producer and consumer hedging as well. So your producer has a good idea or on the futures curve, he can already see where he can sell his product in the future. So if he can lock in the profit now, it probably will. So he pushes the curve down in the deferred side of, of, of or in, in, say, the far dated side of the future curve. They push the curve down. Whereas your consumer, most of the time, is a bit more short-term in nature. So they push the front side of the curve a little bit more up. And it creates these distortions in the curve. And it's exactly these... These distortions that, that could create these opportunities. So you'll find that many times the spread, say, between South African um, yellow maize and seaboard corn along your future curve has a better opportunity in terms of what you can gain versus what you can lose given the underlying fundamentals. But yes, it can be difficult to get into these positions because you have to have your levels and just wait and slowly chip away, chip away at these positions until you reach size. But the interest of the the good thing is, as the trade matures, you move into liquidity. So if you if you're involved in a position a year out on the curve, six months down the line, there will be ample liquidity. So getting out normally is very easy. So given given your footprint, I mean, we're we're not you know mentioning AUM or anything like that, but you're not exactly a small firm anymore. I think you have twenty or thirty people. So that means you. In order to patiently get into the the trade, how long does it take? I mean, for the kind of like risk size that you want to have, is it two weeks, three weeks, even longer to kind of like get to full risk? It kind of depends a little bit on the on the market conditions, but it can sometimes take months to to, to get into a position. Wow, month yeah. even. And yeah, it can, working, it can take long. You're working the order every day. You see what every you day. get. See what you get every day, chipping away, chipping away, yes. And is this is this an order that you would have sitting in the order book of the exchange or would you go through specialist brokers, for instance, in South Africa to, you know, give you bits and offers on South African yellow maize? What is, what's the best way of doing that? So the South African market is, is strange in that sense because anonymity can be a problem. So the way you can get anonymity is is through large brokerages or the larger South African brokerages. So you tend to split up your flow through these brokerages to kind of hide your presence a little bit. But I'd say the best way to get good um, or, or tighter bid asks is, is through specialist brokerages in South Africa, definitely. Right, right. And so I think I remember when we first spoke that for the largest, the largest part of what you do does have a quantitative underpinning, which means, I mean, you're a quant, you're a physics PhD, you work with numbers, you create models, you run a lot of back tests, and that would signal you when to get in and out of a trade. But then you also mentioned, well, whether you actually get into a trade then also depends on your fundamental analysis of the commodity in question, which is to say you're not a fully systematic trading shop you are a hybrid between you know systematic and discretionary where your fundamental analysis is obviously discretionary but then it is really the kind of like the cherry on the top which says okay now we're getting into this whatever spread trade it is i mean we've just only spoken about the uh essentially the the, the corn arbitrage trade between geographies uh but it's is any it could be a refinement or processing refining margin trade any of these trades is informed by your fundamental analysis. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so we kind of have this two-pronged approach. And so the first, the first approach that we follow is a pure quantitative approach. So here we have defined a universe of different calendar and relative value pairs that that we investigate all along the curve. 
So kind of this bridge, as you mentioned, is opposing positions on different parts of the curve of the same commodity. And relative value, I'm going to refer to that as opposing positions on related but different commodities. And most of the time, we're going to be a little bit further out, out on the curve. So we have created a our own database of, of these relative value pairs that are of interest to us and has a fundamental pairing. So we will never look at something like gold versus lumber, as an example. It always has to make sense to compare the one to the other, at like corn versus soybeans, or lean hogs versus live cattle, or gas and power. It must have this genuine fundamental links where the one somehow is related to the supply and demand of the other. So inside this universe, the first thing we do every morning is we, we have a screen. So the screening tools tells us whether our relative value universe is either suppressed or stretched. So are the, are the spread values low or are they high compared to historical values? This is kind of where we start. So we look at those spreads which are the the most suppressed or the most stretched. And then we look at these spreads and we then identify, okay, so we identify a point of the curve which is suppressed. And then we, under, then we look at the current fundamentals. The idea behind this is we want to understand from the fundamentals. So in the commodity space, when I say fundamentals, I broadly mean the supply and demand dynamics of the underlying commodities within the jurisdictions in which they are produced and consumed. So I just want to want to stay there because in equity space, fundamentals might be all kinds of ratios and other stuff. So we need to understand why a spread is suppressed or stretched. If, according to the best of our knowledge, we cannot find a fundamental reason why a current spread is so suppressed, it signals that this might be an interesting opportunity to go and have a look at. So from there, we have a look at these fundamentals and we try to forecast it into the future. So given the ending stocks and forecasted yields and weather and all these things, we try to forecast what the ending stocks of these commodities might be a season out. And we, those are the numbers that we stress. So the fundamentals are then stressed in such a way that we can make the spread even more suppressed. So we see then how can we break these fundamentals so that your, your spread will move even more against you. And on the flip side, what we do is we then want to see like what kind of fundamental situation can then force these spreads back to normality or even into, say, a, a, a big under-supply under, under as an example. And from that, we determine the upside and downside ratio. So how much can the spread move against us or for us? If the spread then has an upside-downside ratio of at least two, this is something that, that we'll go and have to look at. So the next step is trying to see if there's enough liquidity for us. Most of the time, liquidity is a bit thin. So we slowly, slowly chip away at these positions until we reach, we, we, we reach our, our, our target sizing. And as a rule of thumb for target sizing, we start with a downside move that will equate to about a 1% loss of NAV if that if that happens happens to occur. So this is more or less what, what we then try to do. Then on a weekly basis or even daily basis for some commodities, we monitor the fundamentals, be they gas flows, power usage, um, different yield models on the crops, weather data, all these things, and we constantly update these fundamentals and we stress it to see if this upside-downside ratio still remains a 2 to 1. If it's not 2 to 1, we'll get out of the position because we want to create this asymmetry in our portfolio. Do you separate the two tasks inside your firm? Like, for instance, are you you're the quant, you're looking at the statistical like groundwork here, like when is a spread statistically or historically suppressed or stretched? And then you could say, hey, fundamental analysis team, here is a spread, whatever it is. Can you please give that a closer look? And they will then dig into whatever the weather models or, you know, yield models for the crop, whatever it is, to confirm your your finding. Yeah, so even here we we have now become this this hybrid animal. So even in these cases, what we've 
we've created many models. So we try to like kind of model the behavior of the spread as a function of the underlying fundamentals. So throughout the years, we've now created a whole database of different fundamental data points that we like to look at. And then we try to find out which of these fundamentals are the most important during different parts of the year. So, th so then again, now you have got say quant modeling on the fundamental side, trying to help the fundamental guys looking at the best, they say, say the trigger points in the fundamentals, which could be interesting. And then a lot of these guys have decades of experience in the physical market themselves. And then they give valuable feedback again to the quant side in modeling these things. So I think the two work hand in hand to create like an even better product. So I'd say that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I want to have a question about data that you're using because, you know, when you say, okay, in order to find out whether a spread is statistically cheap or expensive, I mean, you could do something as simple as a percentile analysis and just look at, you know, what is the difference between one contract versus the other and what has the maximum been over the past of that same combination, that same contract month combination in history. Now, when you do that, for instance, you do that, say, in our example that we already touched on, Chicago versus South Africa, you're talking about different time zones and different times of settlement for the futures contract. So when you compare one against the other, you have a bunch of noise that you would be including within your analysis simply because of the fact that, you know, Chicago still moves while South Africa has already closed. Do you therefore use tick data or intraday data so that you snapshot both markets at say whatever it is, like right now at 3 p.m., 4 p.m. European time, or how do you go about this? Yeah, so we do do this. So specifically for South African yellow maize, um, actually for South Africa, for US corn, there's a South African listed contract, which which helps a lot with that. So it's just a, it's a VBE contract. So it's a it's a Chicago, it's a cash settled futures contract. That's the, 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 the Bloomberg symbol, right? The Bloomberg yeah, ticker just for the, okay. Yeah, the VBE contract. So that's very useful if you're trading this arbitrage because um, they get settled at 12 o'clock South African time. It, it helps a lot with 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 mark to market purposes. Otherwise, it is it is a bit a bit of a, of a tricky show because your South African market gets obviously closed at, at twelve our side, and then stuck of the U.S. market. So you do have this time time difference, which can be a bit of a pain when it comes to mark to market. But from our point of view, when we trade it, we look at data captured at twelve. So this is like. Just look at it, Tom. So there you go. You know, I would say this is actually, even though that sounds simple, that is quite a high barrier to entry into the type of trades that you're doing because, you know, most traders would say download their market data from CSI or Bloomberg, but it would be end of day data because anything that is more granular than end of day either becomes more difficult to process internally in databases or it becomes more expensive to obtain. And it's kind of like it, it already stops there, right? And when you then look at that spread trade, what you're looking at is actually a very noisy relationship that would get you into all types of incorrect or wrong positions, whereas essentially you're looking at the right thing. But in order to make that 12 o'clock noon snapshot, uh, you have to go the extra mile and get the data synchronized. So this is... Actually, you've mentioned yellow maze. Sorry to, to twist on this, um, but there's also white maze. For most people, for most people, <laughs> corn is yellow. What is what is the why? I guess it's the younger the younger corn that is already traded, but is it is it already harvested or why? Yeah, well, what so exactly? Okay. So in many African countries, maize is, is a staple, and the maize that people consume is is, is white maize. So in in Africa, they call it pup, and pup is basically a porridge that's that's made from ground white maize, and it's in South Africa and many African countries, it's a, like I said, it's a staple. And what you'll find is that there's a very seldom substitution of yellow maize into white maize, only in times of a drought, where there's not enough uh, white maize in South Africa, will you see um, su the substitution of yellow maize going into in, into um, white maize for for human consumption. So that's interesting. So it's it's a relative value pair that you might think will be obvious: yellow versus white maize in South Africa, but it only really happens. Under under drought conditions, but one gets substituted for okay. the other. 
So yeah, I didn't know that. I was under the assumption that, you know, it's white because it's still younger and it, it hasn't grown to like, you know, the full crop cycle or to the end of the crop cycle and, you know, before it becomes yellow. But you're saying it's actually a different type of mace, right? Or a different type of corn. Um, one thing or another thing is uh, touching on risk management because this is, and sizing in particular, this is, at least in my experience, something that you need to put more thought into like, how do you size a spread within a portfolio, given that you're now talking about a position that has two legs, which can move independently of one another, both against you at the same time, or one against you and the other one for you, or both for you at the same time. But it is, um, it is, it is just different in terms of handling it than a outright position where a lot of systematic traders, myself included, they would use an ATR or some type of volatility measure in order to figure out, you know, the range of that market, how volatile is that market, and then position sizing is a function of that. But with spreads, you oftentimes have this, you know, behavior where there's nothing happening. The spread is very behaved, very involatile, and then all of a sudden, um, some event materializes and the spread just, you know, goes through the roof or drops to the floor and you know, essentially a volatility burst. How do you manage that? So that that's kind of the stuff we're we're looking to be involved in, actually. So, many, like you said, many times spreads don't really do much, but every now and then it actually does do something. So, so this is what we we try to to quantify at trade inception. We try to determine what is the floor of the spread, at least. Theoretically, what kind of a floor can we assign to this spread? We have to remember that we're still we're dealing with a commodity, a physical thing that people are willing to buy and sell. If, as an example, the the price of corn is below a farmer's profit level, he's probably not going to plant corn. He's probably going to plant soybeans or something else because. The price that he can that he can sell his production forward on the curve is not sufficient to cover his expenses. So it's not it's, gonna, it's not going to work for, for for the farmer. So there's this intrinsic floor in many of these commodities, and if you have this floor together with a good understanding of the different global jurisdictions consuming different commodities versus those that are producing it and the freight rates involved to, to getting the commodities from point A to point B, it gives you a very good idea of like what these floors are in the commodities. And from the spreads, you can then have a very good idea how deep this spread can move against you or can move away from current level. So this is how we then try to quantify our risk. We look at value of the spread currently compared to this fundamental floor that we that we obtain through proprietary data and analysis and all, all kinds of stuff. And if this move to this floor happens, we then size the positions accordingly. Well, here I mean that as a rule of thumb, we'll size a position or our, our goal sizing would be to risk a half a percent of NAV if the spread then move, move, moves against us. Just, just give you an idea. All right. So I guess this kind of like works in or under the assumption of let's say normalcy or, you know, the, the, the world operating with these commodities as it used to. But when things happen like, you know, the Ukraine war or, you know, an extreme weather event, then that is, that is, I guess, something that you can't really, even in your assessment or your risk stretching that you're doing ahead of time, you can't really, nobody can forecast that, right? I mean, these yeah, things you can, happen. You can't and then, forecast it, no. But you do have a good idea of, say, weather risk as an example. So you do have a good idea of when you can expect weather risk. So during those times on your futures curve, you want to be long the risk. So as an example, in for North American agricultural commodities, you want to have long exposure during U.S. summers. Because if there's a summer drought or not enough rain, then you will see a spike in, in, in their futures prices in summer. Similar, similar with, with natural gas. Like in, in the high demand period, you probably want to have your long legs. Got it. So what I want to mention is storage, because storage plays a role in the forward price of a physical commodity. 
and I guess that also then ties us into the definition of what you'd coined or what you mentioned as full carry. And it, it also impacts your sizing, I guess. Do you have historical data on storage costs for each of the commodities? And so how do you get, how do you get them? Are there, are there brokers or like data vendors through which you can obtain these, these data points? I'm not sure about the data vendors, but we've got a, a, a large network of brokerages and um, physical traders that, that, that we have relied on historically to, to get this data and to build up this database and, and we continue to rely on them going, going forward. So, I mean, just in terms of uh, the South African market, there's many different delivery points and each delivery point has is a different silos, different owners. So you need to be aware of the costs associated with each of these to get an idea of of, of, of what what the, the, the full carry can be. Similarly in the States, in, in Europe. So you kind of need a, a network of say, brokers or other people to kind of supply you with, with this information. And that only comes with time, time and experience and like they're speaking to, to, the, to the right people. So you mentioned the shape of the curve that's kind of determined by storage. So very broadly, if you have ample stocks in a specific commodity, be this corn, coffee, sugar, cocoa, whatever it may be, ample stocks will give a futures curve that's upward sloping or in contango. So here your further dated part of your curve is trading at a premium. So this is to in, it's kind of like to induce Oh, I, or to incentivize you to carry to to hold the stock, so you can have, buy it cheap and, and, and sell it further along the curve. If you if you are a a, a storage facility, I suppose, and the converse happens when you have too much demand versus your supply. Now, what's going to happen is the front end of your curve is being bid up by your consumer who is scrambling to get hold of this product or this commodity. And it's forcing your curve into a backwardation most of the time. So in situations where you have ample stock, you get a situation where your silos and your warehouses can actually fill. So there might not be space left in your silos for another kernel of corn or for another year of wheat because there physically is not space left. And this is what I mean by full carry. And you can determine uh, the value of full carry if you have good idea what the storage costs are of these different commodities over their different jurisdictions and you know how much volume of the stock is being stored at these different silos can give you a very good idea how much it costs and this coupled with interest rates will determine the contango of this futures curve and if your current curve is close is trading close to full carry say 95 percent of full carry Theoretically, it means it can only go another 5% until it reaches full carry because there is a little more space left. So here it shows a trade that it has a very limited downside. But a season on, you'll find your curve is still quite contango. Over there in that season, that stock hasn't been determined. So that's the, the situation in the next season might be explosive towards the bullish side. So it gives you a good a good asymmetric opportunity. Right. So I think, uh, so you're taking a, either the, the price of the cash commodity or a very near dated futures contract, you would essentially give it, um, the interest rate drift, some short rate in order to, you know, move the price up into the future. I mean, that is a component of any futures or any derivative essentially. And then add on top of that, your, from your database, the storage cost. Um, annualize that together with the interest rate in order to get your internal futures price, right? And then compare that to where the market trades. And if they are, say, at exactly the same thing, you'd say, well, they are now at full carry and, and there isn't really any upside anymore. And therefore you'd rather, well, I'd or, say, or only in an extreme case, maybe. Well, I tend to think of it the other way around. In such a case, I would want to have bull spread exposure. So I would want to be long a fronter, uh, say an earlier part of the curve and shorter the third part of the curve. Not not close to spot, say a couple months out, because the downside of this bull spread moving more contango is limited. 
because of full carrier. Whereas if there is a little bit of a hiccup, say a war or a drought or something, then your curve is going to move violently in the other direction. Right. So the risk of that bull spread is much less than the risk of a bear spread, right? Exactly. And, and, and so essentially the carry position being short the front and long the back is a much riskier uh, setup in the scenario that you've just described. Yes, exactly. The other thing that comes to mind here with especially the, the, the names that you've mentioned, the grain markets, um, is seasonality. So, you know, one spread isn't going to be looking just exactly like, you know, the next spread of the next season if you're crossing harvesting periods, for instance, like summer versus old crop, new crop, or summer, winter in the gas markets. How do you adjust for that? Do you only compare lookalike uh, combinations, like, you know, um, the same spread every year, or do you do you also take, because I guess there are some traders which trade across the seasons and well, I'm sure they are. And, you know, there, there's profits to be had, but I guess the risks are much greater as well. Yeah. So the risks are much greater, much greater to create, to, to trade across so different, different seasons for, for, for your, your eggs, but also there's this interesting opportunities there, there as well. So depending on your curve shapes and the forecasted fundamentals of the next season, there might be some very interesting opportunities there as well. But for many commodities, there it has this built-in uh, cyclic behavior that is actually fantastic. So for most of your eggs, as an example, you need to plant them at a certain stage. They need to get good sunlight during a certain time. They need to get good rain during a certain time. Some commodities, like wheat, even have to get good snow at some time to, secure, to, to create a, a good yield. And this process has to repeat year after year after year. For for farmers, I mean, this is just the the way it is. And the interesting thing of this that this creates is that it creates recurring anomalies inside this universe of spreads. So the behavior of different calendar spreads and different relative value pairs do exhibit a lot of cyclic behavior. I mean, before we're closing that down. Um... Well, first off, if there's anything that you'd like to bring up, which you think we did forget and should really speak about, then please bring it up. But if if not, then I'd like to speak a little bit about how trading was like uh, during, say, the recent two years or two or three years, you know, with the pandemic, um, energy markets. Oh, speaking about energy markets, full carry, I guess we did see the crude oil market in very much full carry uh, uh, when, the, when the pandemic happened. I think it was the May contract that, that went negative. But also, like last year, after the start of the Ukraine war uh, with the grain markets, which I think became incredibly dislocated between even, you know, black sea weed, I think became a liquid and dislocated from European weed and dislocated from, from U.S. weed. What's your, uh, your experience there and how was trading during that period? That was some of the most stressful times I've experienced in the last decade. <laughs> and I think a lot of the, my gray hair that I now have post um, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine is <laughs> because of that due, due to some some wheat arbitrages it might have taken a year or two off of my life I can remember the day very clearly it was actually my and my wife's 11 year wedding anniversary and we were away and I had to roll a part of the portfolio forward in the morning and I quickly had a look at the at the PL and I couldn't believe what I saw and I phoned my, my, my colleagues asked her, is, is this real isn't there, is there a bug in the code or something? It's got, it can't be. And then he informed me, informed me that this is, it's, it's very, very, very real. So yeah, my wedding, 11th wedding anniversary is very memorable. And now uh, it is, it's crazy. So during that time, a trade that many grain houses and many agricultural traders would have been involved with would have been being long European wheat versus short benchmark Chicago or, 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 or Kansas, Kansas wheat. So many of the grain houses would have been involved in that sound trade. So European wheat was, was very cheap and um, US wheat was, was, trading, was, was, was trading at a premium. And the US looked like they would have a good crop. So on the short side, you would have a positive roll ro rolling along this contango curve. So it looked like a, a very good trade. And then um, this was the in Russian in, in, in invasion of Ukraine, and all of a sudden nobody wanted to touch European wheat. But your physical commodity 
consumers, they still wanted to get their hands on the product. So they still... Let, let me stop you right there, Maurits, because I think that's important. Why did they not want to touch European weed, which is, you know, if we're talking milling weed, which is traded on the Matif in, in, in France, this is not, you know, I would have thought people would like to water, you know, black sea wheat, um, like closer to the region, but you're saying, no, they didn't want, because, you know, Germany, France, we produce wheat, maybe not that much, but we're a part of the European wheat market. So why didn't people or traders want our wheat? I think it was, it's a, I think many times they use a Matif contract as a proxy for, for black sea wheat. Black sea, the black sea wheat contract is a difficult one to trade. You need to have OTC agreements in place. So, it's like, so you can, you can do it. It's just a little bit difficult. So I think people tend to use that Matif Bloomberg CI wheat as, as a proxy for, for your black sea, black sea wheat, just cause it's a little bit easier, easier to, to trade. But the crazy thing is that a lot of your vessels had to go through the Black Sea and those vessels couldn't get insurance. So nobody, you couldn't get wheat. You couldn't get that, 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 that wheat out. So what happened in the market was your, your um, Matif wheat would close, every day close limits down, limits down, limits down. Well, on the US side, consumers still wanted the product. So it was bit up. On the US side, so that would close limits up, limits up, limits up every day. So your candle would be burning at both ends, and um, you couldn't get out of the position. So it was, it was terribly frightening. So the only way you could reduce your position was actually to trade calendar spreads. So just to get out of it, but then you're paying up so much for, for these calendars, it's not worth it. So internally, what we did, we all just came came together, we did spend many, many hours in the office and we still we just tried to simplify our position to the bare essentials that that, that of the position that, that we had. On closed everything it didn't make any 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 sense that we could. But we focused a lot on the underlying fundamentals. So again here you had to look at who consumes this wheat, where are they getting it from? And after really focusing and studying these fundamentals, you could see that the Ukrainian wheat isn't such a big part of the balance sheet and the world would actually be fine. And I mean, decided to just hold on, on, on to, to this position and eventually the, the fundamentals realized. So in retrospect, you could probably have asked, why don't you double down the position? But yeah. No, it was just too, the world was too, too crazy and too. I'm, I'm, I'm no. definitely not asking that question. I think, yes, you know, yes, <laughs> I like, I like small losers and large winners. So, you know, when you are in that hole, it's uh, usually not a good idea to, you know, to continue with the digging. But, but here, I mean, I think what you're describing is actually one example of a scenario where originally, I think you mentioned you plan to risk 0.5% of NAV or 1% of NAV on a spread position that you had already stretched and kind of like run a scenario analysis on. But now because of limit up and limit down contract locks or, you know, the behavior of these contracts, you couldn't get out of the position, which means uh, the 1% the of NAV is a distant memory and you've, you're losing much more. Yeah, because yeah. Multiples you, you, of essentially, that. Right? I think a, a big part of what happened over there is you had a lot of funds that had a lot of segregated accounts. And these segregated accounts had different risk managers. So the different big institutional investors, they might have their own risk managers assigned to different segregated accounts. And once it hit their limit, they just wanted to get out. And a lot of them, I think, pushed the market to these extremes. With kind of getting out ex at exactly the wrong time. Um, and was it also a, uh, a time where or when the exchanges raised margin requirements or whatever, like collateral requirements you had. So this is another force that is, you know, essentially pulling against you uh, because you have to come up with a liquidity in order to support the position, which you're kind yes, of stuck exact, with. Ex exactly. So you're stuck with this position and you had to, so you probably had to liquidate some other exposure to still be able to have um, enough margin for, for, for these, uh, for these positions. But saying that, it's interesting, it's another benefit of, of relative value arbitrage inside the commodity space, is that you actually get margin discount. So uh, for calendar spreads as an example, or if you're just long a commodity, most of the time your margin is, say, 10% of notional. Whereas if you have a calendar spread 
because you're long and short, the exchange gives you a discount. So you only have to tie up about 5% of the notional. So you actually have a lot of free cash. So in our case, we didn't really have to liquidate any any, any of, our, of our positions because we had sufficient cash. So in, in the event where you have opposing positions on different exchanges, these offsets don't apply. So in this case, you're stuck with Chicago, Kansas, and in Matif. So because the exchanges don't talk to each other, you don't get this offset. But of course, you do. They're, no. they're different clearinghouses. Um, but I mean, that is what you've just described as a massive advantage, I would say. You know, you remember during the great financial crisis where um, because of, you know, collateral requirements rising and margin rates increasing, a lot of funds were essentially forced to produce liquidity and sell whatever, even the good assets or the good trades that they had in order to, su to support the rotten potatoes. And that is, you know, to the extent that you can is, uh, is something that you'd like to avoid as, as much as you can or never get into because the outcome of that is, is usually not good. Now, in your case, you were, I think you mentioned you were able to, well, you decided to sit with a position and see it to the other end. At some point, it comes to a natural ending point because these contracts expire. But I mean, what, what, what happened? What kind of like was the relief valve there? Was it that the European wheat found another way out of the continent, like in, as, as opposed to going through the Black Sea? I mean, maybe you can run rail cars to the port of Rotterdam and then ship it from there. And then, you know, there's the insurance problem goes away because you put it on vessels. Yeah, so there was, there was a bit of a grain corridor that, that opened and then closed and opened and closed. But the big thing is globally, the wheat balance sheet was actually fine. So the U.S. had more than enough wheat to, to, to make up for the loss of the Ukrainian crop. That's like, that's the, the, the big, the big thing. And it took a while for the market to, to realize this, but the, when it did, the move back was also, was also pretty, pretty aggressive. Unfortunately, your air doesn't lose its gray again. <laughs> it doesn't come back. I know. Um, final question as we're reaching the one hour mark. And by the way, I, I, enjoy the conversation a lot, but given that you have a focus on commodities and you know, that the footprint of commodity hedge funds in the overall space, uh, I think is relatively small still. What is, I mean, when you speak to investors, what do you think is the, the holdback or their concerns? It, I, I guess it's much more difficult to speak to them about commodities than it is if you were just saying, oh, I'm, I'm a South African equities manager or a global equities manager. We're very good at fundamental analysis of stocks, but now you're talking commodity spreads, something difficult. ESG maybe plays a role. What, what's the experience in this space? Like, how tough is it? Look, I find to, if you're speaking to, to anybody in the edge fund space, it's probably very difficult to, to, to raise to raise capital but i think in our little niche it's 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 it still remains difficult but at least i think we have a very interesting story i think many of your investors are very much used to an equity top-down bottom-up approach and with all the bells and whistles they've heard it all before and it's not something different whereas a Already a, a commodity story is very different. Now a commodity relative value story is also kind of very different and unique. And what's interesting is that almost every day of the week, there's something interesting happening in the commodity space. So there's always an interesting story that has some interesting price dynamic associated to it. So there's always a talking point that you can talk to an investor about, which is, 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 is interesting. And I think because... It's so different from anything else, especially in the relative value space. It lends itself to be a, a fantastic portfolio diversifier. And just that by the nature of, of constructing a portfolio that has this built-in asymmetry, so this say ballpark two to one upside downside, I think is a, is a compelling argument for, for, for many investors, but still even for us, it's not easy to get them across the line. No, it never is. So, Maurits, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for doing this today. And listeners, please make sure you follow Maurits and Polar Star. You can find the contact and social media information in the show notes. And as ever, should you have any questions, please send an email to info at toptradersonplug.com, where we'll pick it up and respond. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Open Interest. 
and that you've gained valuable insights into the commodity calendar spread markets by listening to today's conversation. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.